So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and while you're turning there, um, I'll just give a brief recap of where we are uh, in the book. So last week, uh, we looked at the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, where Luke emphasized for the second time the love present in the early Christian community that's demonstrated by believers voluntary voluntarily sharing all things in common. Um, He remarked there were no needy among the Christians in Jerusalem because they were selling and sharing the possessions to meet everyone's needs. Uh, In contrast to Barnabas, who Luke described selling a field and bringing its proceeds to the apostles, Ananias and Sapphira deceptively kept back part of the proceeds of their sale of property. Uh, Rather than sharing, as a result of being inwardly filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira outwardly uh, deceived believers because they were filled with Satan. They desired human praise uh, as more important than being faithful to and fearful of God. Their actions represented not just a lack of charity, but a denial of the power of the Spirit. Um, Luke presents it as an act of defiance and disobedience. So they're not so much condemned for not having brought the entire proceeds, but more about their deception and lying about the fact that, uh, and this claim saying they did. Um, And so by doing so, um, they're sinning against the spirit, um, which Luke is using to emphasize the Christian community just isn't an outward neutral aid society but is something that possesses this internal spiritual dimension. And so to sin against the spirit is to sin against God. And God held Ananias and Sapphira instantly and publicly accountable for their actions um, in this way that with their instant death, great fear came upon the whole church. But despite the fearsome deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the apostles continued to perform wondrous signs and to proclaim Jesus and the temple precincts, which in the second half of chapter 5, we saw their arrest and um, their second appearance in front of the the Jewish Sanhedrin. Um, In this episode, God miraculously freed the apostles from this guarded public prison instructing them to go and stand in the temple and to speak to all the people all the words of this life. So it's kind of ironic, um, uh, this ironic demonstration of the Sanhedrin's powerlessness and inability to thwart the will of God when they discover that when they go to try the men and they're not to be found, they're found right back in the temple doing the exact same thing (laughs) that they were told not to do. Um, So the council, uh, uh, again, arrests the apostles this time, like, for fear of the crowd, um, doing it uh, in a um, uh, nonviolent, more friendly fashion. Um, But then they confront the apostles with their actions. Uh, As Luke says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Um, And we saw and talked about that rather than acknowledge the clear presentation of the truth regarding Jesus by repenting and turning from their past sins, the council steadfastly opposed teaching in the name of Jesus 
and sought to kill the apostles. And then finally, last week, we looked at this um, uh, Pharisee uh, named Gamaliel, who wisely counseled patience to the council, arguing on the basis of precedent that if the apostles' work was simply the action of men, then that work would come to nothing. But time would show if God truly acted through these common men, um, even as we've seen God acting on their behalf uh, earlier in the chapter by freeing them in prison. So although the apostles still preach the God of their fathers, the high priestly leadership rejects the idea that God is at work and moves to separate the apostolic ministry from Judaism. Um, so the leadership, uh, Luke's emphasis, has rejected clear fulfillment um, underwritten by many diverse uh, God-attested signs. So with that, we turn to chapter 6. Um, and again, there's this uh, uh, mixture of internal pressures and external pressures operating in and on the Christian community as it continues to grow. So you have this continued emphasis on growth, but also uh, growth and opposition. And these two things are going uh, hand in hand through the book of Acts. The diversity and size of the needs uh, and size of the needs within the church creates problems that require greater organization and spiritual leadership. This same persistent growth and expanded leadership leads to new confrontations with Jewish leaders and further trials of gospel ministry. And chapter 6 um, is uh, a turning point, or it starts a turning point. Um, it begins a long section. Chapter 7 is super long. Um, I originally thought I'd do 6 and 7 at the same time, and then I looked and saw how long chapter 7 was. was like, no. <laughs> um, but 6 and 7 are a turning point with the trial and execution of Stephen, which leads to more open, violent persecution of the church, but I ironically is also the means of scattering the church and leading to the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. So the martyrdom of Stephen um, doesn't end the church as the leadership uh, hopes, to, uh, hopes to accomplish, but actually is a means of the spread of the gospel. So with that, let me read chapter 6 for us, and then I'll open us in prayer. Hear now the word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, 
was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to open it uh, in our hearts and uh, minds as we discuss it this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you for your many gifts to us. Uh, most grateful are we for the gift of Jesus Christ, who gives us uh, life and life eternal. And we thank you for the body of Christ uh, that is made by being uh, believers, being united to him, and thus united to one another. So as we look at the beginning of your church, help us to see uh, the role of your spirit in uh, bringing a body together to work together, um, to pray together, to proclaim your name together, to worship together, to serve one another, um, to leave aside the distinctions of men, but to focus on our union with Christ. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the faith of believers uh, that are described in the book of Acts as they faithfully proclaim your word despite the open threat of uh, imprisonment and persecution and even in the case of Stephen, as we'll see next week, death. That they uh, feared you more than they feared men. That they would rather obey you than obey the laws and strictures of men. Give us that same spirit that we might boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, despite the earthly consequences of doing so. Teach us now, we pray, by that same spirit that filled uh, believers in the early church, that caused them to go and to proclaim and to do great things. That same spirit uh, dwells in us and help us to understand uh, what is being said, that we too might proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, so uh, two kind of major sections um, in this book. Uh, the first is uh, about this uh, um, difficulty or complaint existing in the Christian church that leads to the appointment of these seven men, one of whom is Stephen. And then the second half focuses on Stephen's outward troubles as he proclaims the gospel and is arrested and, and will be tried for his um, teaching regarding Jesus. So let's, we'll, we'll deal with them uh, in turn. 
So, yeah, what strikes you about what's going on in this Christian community in Jerusalem that leads to the selection of these seven men? So, like, you know, what's happening here? Unfairness. Yeah, so that there's this unequal distribution. Um, And notice how that's a slight shift from what has been, like, you know, the earlier chapters. They've shared all things in common. No one has any needs. And now they're reaching a stage um, where there is an unequal distribution. Um, It's not sharing all things in common, but um, how the resources are flowing around, uh, they're not doing so in an equal manner. Good. What else? So we've got a little bit of inequality. Yeah, it's a response, this inequality, um, and, and especially as we look at it, um, we, I mean, there are a couple ways we can think about what's the root of the inequity. Um, and, you know, part of it is this distinction between the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So there is, whether we use Hellenist as an ethnic term or it's probably more a linguistic. So the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, um, this is where the in- inequality uh, arises. And is it more because of some kind of, yeah, ethnic hostility, or is it, I think, um, what you're suggesting, Rob, it's, you know, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, you know, that this church has now gotten to the size and the scope of it. Um, it's becoming so large and diverse and complex that task that the apostles had been handling before, and the earlier chapters did show people coming and bringing, Barnabas was said to bring his gift and lay it at the apostles' feet. So clearly they've been a part of this distribution um, of property to make sure people, yeah, everybody knew everybody. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and everybody, uh, Yeah, everybody knew each other. Um, It's growing so quickly, though. It's gotten so and become so diverse that now not everybody knows one another. So as we think about this inequity, um, we can think about it either kind of, again, kind of intentional sin that, like, some people, because of, oh, they're the Greek speakers, like, let them take care of themselves and we take care of our own first. So it could be that. Or it could be just the kind of, you know, it's grown so fast and you've got this group of people who've come in that you don't know, and so you're not aware of their needs. And maybe it's an unintentional thing. Yeah, that they're, they're just not, uh, you just don't know them, so you're unaware of their needs. And so the inequity is the result of, again, not intentional sin, but the result of, of growth. Um, good. What else? So we've got inequity. We've got inequity that is that has this, uh, you know, that's created a somewhat division in the church. Um, that is part of the the intense growth that's been going on in these early chapters. 
yeah, the, the verbs are, are always, like, to, if we go back to chapter 4. Um, uh, so if you look at the end of chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. All those verbs are imperfect, which means they're ongoing continuous action. So even though you know, it's usually translated past tense in Greek, the emphasis is on this is something they did and continue to do. So exactly that that and, and notice the emphasis on widows like you know um, widows and orphans uh, throughout the scriptures are often identified as being the most vulnerable people um, these are the people that lack the kind of familial ties and protections that would give them support and so the church is looking out for the needs of the most vulnerable in the community, which are widows. And they are meeting their needs daily. Not just kind of, you know, every so often and kind of a public gesture, like, look, we're helping them. <laughs> like, you know, we're feeding them one month or one day out of the month. Uh, no, they're doing it every day. They're making sure that the people in their community have the distribution of, of what they need to survive that day. Yeah, the, the emphasis on, um, that, like we saw last week, the emphasis is on the voluntariness of this. Like with Ananias and Sapphira, just to recap back at chapter 5, you know, why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit uh, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Like, you know, so it's emphasizing, look, no one required you to sell this land. No one required you to give all of it to the church. So why do you lie <laughs> and said that you did when you didn't? Um, but the emphasis is on the voluntary aspect of this. And, you know, they're, they're, right now we're in one place. Like, we're in Jerusalem. We're in an urban setting where... Uh, we haven't yet seen the church kind of go beyond this initial community. So the situation is, is, is kind of unique, I would say, at this particular moment. But the principle that the Christian community should be so filled with love that they take care of one another's needs, I would say that is the, is the, for, you know, the principle that holds forth for us, that we should be voluntarily give to make sure that no one in our community is without need. And that's why we, you know, in addition to our normal offering, we have this deacon fund to, to meet people's needs when they arise. 
So, you know, we want to make sure that the people in our community are taken care of. Um, it doesn't mean we all have to necessarily move in together. Um, I do wish we all lived closer together because I think that would increase the visible nature of our community. Um, but I, again, I, you know, I, I think circumstances change how this, you know, how the principle works its way forward. But I would say the principle is that we should be a community that got, you know, that's devoted to the apostles' teaching, that um, is in prayer, that's breaking bread with one another, um, and that's worshiping together. Like, you know, these principles we saw earlier and you know, the very first description of this community of believers. They're gathering together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, uh, and to fellowship. Um, those are the four things that distinguish this church. Good. Other things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that trait, that, that principle comes out. Look at the traits that are, pick out from among you seven men of good rep repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who appoint to this duty. Like, you know, it, it's, it's not just appointing seven guys <laughs> who can hand stuff out. It's seven people full of spirit and wisdom who love and, and know how to deal with people. Um, it, it, and, and yeah, and diaconal ministry, as we'll see, is integrally tied to the proclamation of the gospel. Like Stephen is 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 doing, it's you know his. Um, this doesn't define what he does, as we see later in the chapter. He's still teaching and evangelizing and engaging in disputes. Like he's you know, it's not just a mere handing out of stuff. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, notice the description, you know, uh, I mean, and he's singled out. So in the list of seven, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and then again in, in verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So, you know, uh, he, he's, he's definitely someone who's um, extremely capable and skilled and good at lots of things. Like it's not just like he's only good for one thing. He's <laughs> now that, you know, don't be putting down our deacons. Like, I mean, and again, it's the, um, and in doing this, it's not to, I like how it's it's a matter of priorities for the apostles. Like, it's not that the, this, these tasks are like unworthy or beneath them. It's just like they're less 
important or you know, priority-wise, like this is what we need to be doing, so we need to point other people to be doing this other necessary work. Like this is stuff that has to be done, but we need to be, you know, uh, as it says, um, uh, you know, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of word. It's a division of labor, um, a division of necessary labor, not that, you know, Yeah, and again, some people have actually wondered if, um, you know, if these seven are, are really to be termed deacons. Like, so the word serve shows up, but never are they labeled, like, seven deacons. So, like, they're choosing seven men to appoint to, to do certain work. But it's, you know, so there's actually some dispute on, on whether uh, these are deacons. And part of the reason there's a dispute because... Um, clearly they're doing more than just the way that we see um, the division of labor play out in, in later organizations. So maybe it might be more like they're proto-deacons. Like, <laughs> you know, this is the first step toward an organization or, you know, a, an office. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we can, yeah, we can figure out the, uh, I mean, as we... As we see, uh, yeah, look at him trying to elevate himself. Um, <laughs> oh, I'll take that. No. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think, you know, we'll see the structure of, the, of individual churches emerge through the book of Acts. Like later we'll see Paul you know, setting apart elders to, you know, to, to preside over particular denominations. But it's, it's emerging, I would say, it's, it's emerging organically as the needs of the church grow and expand. And so this parting of some of their responsibility to other people is, is is what the church is going to happen throughout the book of Acts. As this church grows far beyond the ability of 12 men to oversee it, that the institution of the church or the organizational aspects of the church are necessary. And so you start having elders and deacons being put in place in every community to help make sure that the, the community's needs are met and the gospel is proclaimed. And that those are, again, two sides of the same coin. They're not like separate, like they're both necessary parts of what this church is doing. Um, but the, the apostles need to be dedicated to the proclamation and prayer. And, uh, and these other men are prioritizing, not exclusively prioritizing, but prioritizing meeting the needs of the congregation. Good. Anything else we want to say about uh, me? Yes, Pat. Yeah, and it, there's a little back and forth because notice how they say pick. You know, like, so they don't appoint seven men, um, like, you know, uh, you know, that they have the people choose from you seven people 
who do this that then they lay like kind of you know lay hands on um so there's this there's this uh, interesting again I, I would say it's the model of servant leadership like they are recognizing a need that that has to be met in the christian community so they're the ones determining to do something about it um but they're not you know saying by my authority you know you do this this is what we're going to do like no like this is a community you know in the community who who are the best people to fill these this need to to fill these roles so you pick um you know and so there's a nice like combination of top down and bottom up uh authority going on here that as a presbyterian i really like <laughs> We're the middle way. <laughs> yeah, that there's a special uh, there's a special call. You know, they summon the full number of the disciples. Yeah, that this is something, you know, again, it's something that's come up and needs to be addressed. And so, um, as Pat's saying, they're taking the authority to do something about it, like a governing board would, like, you know. Well, yeah, they're all named groups. Now, um, notice that only one is specifically singled out as being a proselyte. So, you know, uh, Nicholas is is a convert to Judaism, which the others are probably uh, ethnic Jews, but who are Greek-speaking, um, which Hellenist, again, seems to describe Greek-speaking Jews, not necessarily Gentile. Yeah, and again, I... I, and with the gracious part of it, like, it, and again, this is why some people, is it an ethnic dispute? Like, is there active sin involved here, or is it unintentional? Um, you know, the response doesn't seem to say it's a sin. The response seems to emphasize graciously, like, even if there is sin involved, it graciously deals with it in a way, all right, well, this, we can solve this organizationally to make sure these needs are met. Um, uh, again, what we need is a committee, but, um, uh, but yeah, but they're, they're responding to needs within the community. Um, I, I think that's a great way to, you know, an issue has arisen and they respond immediately and graciously, um, and organizationally to this need, um, that there's intention and, and backing to it, like some people are designated to make sure that this, these needs are met. Um, and, you know, there are uh, seven, uh, all seven have Greek names. So, you know, again, if it's the full number of disciples, you would assume that means both the Hebrew and Hellenist believers, that they're choosing Greek speakers to deal with the need. So it, it, if there is potential for ethnic division, it doesn't reflect itself and who they choose. The emphasis is on the uniformity of choice and dealing with these, picking these seven men to deal with the task. Uh, no. <laughs> um, 
I mean, in the overall population, about uh, it's been estimated about 20% of the Jews were Greek-speaking at this time. So, so within Judaism, um, it's a substantial number of, of Jews um, who have, you know, speak Greek as their, their first language. Um, no. So, yeah, it's now in these days. So, you know, he's not giving us a clear sense of how much time has passed since Pentecost, which was the festival where we had seen Jews from around the world have come to gather. Yeah. I mean, like the last chapter we saw Barnabas, you know, who's from Cyprus, um, you know, know, he's there. So, like, as people have come and committed to this Christian community, yeah, that even people from outside are staying. But there's also a substantial number of people from other places that are already in Jerusalem, as we see in our next section. How about that for a transition? Um, Our our next session, um, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. you know, that there is already within Jerusalem a synagogue that consists of, you know, people from different regions. Um, So there's already a substantial number of Greek speakers, Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, um, and they have their own dedicated synagogue of Jews. Um, Actually, before we get to the second part, um, I do want to just kind of highlight verse 7. So six times in the book of Acts, Luke gives us kind of summary statements um, in very similar way to this. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. So that part kind of shows up um, six times. This is the first one. Um, And this one, it's emphasizing the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So why do you think Luke is, so in his first summary uh, of, of the book, um, uh, yeah, why do you think uh, Luke highlights the, the growing number of priests converting? A great many. There would have been, it's estimated, about 18,000 of these people present in Jerusalem or in and around Jerusalem. So, um, so of that 18,000 priests and Levites in and around Jerusalem, a great many are, are coming to the faith. And as you say, Ryan, it's, it's really significant because these are the people who are involved in the sacrificial system who are recognizing the sacrifice of of Christ, like they are connecting what they do, the symbol, um, with what's being symbolized, um, which is distinct. I think one of the reasons um, that he's he's pointing out, like the contrast between 
um, those high priests who are openly rejecting Jesus and this multitude of everyday priests who are you know, seeing what we described last week as the clear testimony that this is a work of God, that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. They are seeing it as prophecy fulfilled. Good. Other things? Yeah, Pat. That is a great question. I would say yes. Because um, as we've seen them so far, they are still going to the temple, um, like Stephen, still going to the synagogue. We'll see them still going to the synagogue. And as the break w between Christianity and Judaism comes, it's because the Christians are being expelled, not because they, they themselves have left. Um, you know, um, Luke is pretty clear that the, that the, that they're proclaiming Christ not as an alternate to Judaism, like that's wrong, you need to come over and do this that's right, but as the fulfillment of Judaism. All the Old Testament prophets look towards to Christ. You know, all of this is in fulfillment of the, the message of the Old Testament. So this is the, this is the hope that's proclaimed for the people of God in the Old Testament, and we're proclaiming it to you. And what's going to happen is that the Jewish leaders are going to reject that message and drive them out. It's not that the Christians are intentionally separating themselves out. No. Uh, the word church has been used once so far, and, and it's been more the community of believers has been... Um, or the disciples, or, you know, it's been these kind of labels that have, have been given it. It's not an organizational name being attached to it yet. Yeah, they would consider, and again, as we've seen them, they keep going to the temple, um, they're going to synagogues, they, um, but they're going to these places proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of the old. Um, you know, they're not setting themselves up, again, as an uh, arrival, they're setting it up as the fulfillment. Um, it, one commentator I looked at, it, it might be more apt to characterize them uh, as a sect like the Pharisees and Sadducees at this moment. Like, they're presenting a different interpretation of the Old Testament within Judaism. Uh, we haven't seen that word yet. Um, uh, they will in the book of Acts. <laughs> they, they've got lots of names they use uh, so far. And I like the one, like, uh, we get a new one in, in verse 7, obedient to the faith, like, you know, a description of believer, like, it, it, it's being obedient, not to the, you know, not just to the laws of the Old Testament, but obedient to the faith and that idea you know, that kind of carries the connotation um, of Peter's words, we must obey God rather than men. So here you have priests who are willing to be obedient to the faith um, and not necessarily obedient to, um, to the Jewish leaders at the time. Yeah, it's the, the old faith and, and like, so chapter 7, to give a highlight for, yeah, commercial for next week. Uh, one, it's the longest speech in the New Testament. 
um, Stephen. So, see, there's a trend of people named Stephen having being long-winded. <laughs> I would also say, is it a coincidence that the longest sermon we're given in Acts is by a deacon? Um, <laughs> given by a deacon. <laughs> um, but that his his, his the, the address that he gives in chapter 7, um, and we'll talk about this next week, I mean, it, most of it is, is, is a recap of the entire Old Testament. Like, like, you know, it's only like one paragraph at the end where Jesus is, comes up. Like the whole thing is a recitation of Abraham through the Solomon building the temple, like, a whole recitation of, of Old Testament history. And then, but what this points to, it, it teaches something about, you know, Jesus. Like, but he's, he's not telling them the gospel in the sense, well, let me tell you, recount the life and deeds of Jesus Christ. He's telling them the gospel, let me recount to you the deeds of Abraham and Moses and David and blaspheming. <laughs> well, yeah, let's get to that. So what is Stephen, what gets Stephen in trouble? Um, you know. Um, <laughs> being too good at what he does. Um, yeah, and notice uh, uh, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Um, and, you know, it's this interesting, like, they, you know, they can't dispute his exegesis of the Old Testament. They disagree with his conclusions, but they can't uh, quibble with how he reached those conclusions. Like, he's done it with wisdom. Um, he's done it full of the Spirit. They can't, and they can't find a way to, to disprove what he said. But he's making his case from the Old Testament in such a way that they are um, recognize it, the strength of his argument, but reject the conclusions of it. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know anything other than you know his equipage. Uh, you know that he's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace and power. Um, we saw earlier, you know, I, I, I would say at this point, it doesn't, training is not required, <laughs> because as we've seen, like, uh, back in chapter four, um, I, you know, they see these guys, uh, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, like, I mean, that's the astonishing thing about this early church, is that these everyday people are speaking with the eloquence, with the power of a trained scholar, you know, a scribe, a Pharisee, and they're able to do so not because of their own training or power, but because of the Spirit filling them and giving them power, giving them the words to speak, giving them the boldness, as we saw the church praying for, in chapter 4, praying for boldness, praying for the wisdom, praying for the Spirit to uh, let them speak to power in this way. Mike, do you have a... Yeah, I think that, that he, you know, 
Yes. And, it, and Stephen's being described in a similar way to what the apostles, you know, the apostles back in chapter 5. Uh, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Um, and they're proclaiming. They're in the temple, the message. And now, I mean, from the council's perspective, I think um, to your point, Mike, what's especially grievous about Stephen is now we've got, like, we knew about the 12. Who's this guy? <laughs> like, you know, rather than um, their hope to contain it and see it dissipate, now they're seeing it grow. And even more people are proclaiming Jesus Christ and doing great signs and wonders in his name. So we've moved beyond the original 12 guys who we had in here last week. Now there's another guy. Like, you know, it's almost like that kind of what makes Stephen so offensive. Like, it's, it's, he's a clear sign that this is, is spreading. Um, this is a clear sign that, um, that there's power um, that's spreading. It's not just these 12 guys have found a way to do magic tricks and defraud the people. No, they saw the 12 did clear miracles, you know, healing a guy that everybody in Jerusalem for 40 years has known this guy has been crippled from birth, and now he's leaping around. <laughs> um, and the apostles did that. And now you see Stephen um, being described as doing similar things that attest to his message. And again, the combination and acts of the, the signs and wonders authenticating the message, like, you know, that these, these two things go hand in hand, that the purpose of these things are to attest to the truth of what's being proclaimed um, in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, what else strikes you about Stephen's arrest? Again, we get his trial and his really lengthy defense next time. <laughs> but now we just kind of get the summary arrest. Yeah, and we noticed with the apostles, um, they were kind of wary about doing things to the apostles for fear of the crowd. Like, you know, they've been very politically um, aware um, to do everything. Like, the first arrest of the apostles appeared to be kind of secret and at night. Um, the second one, it's clear they're imprisoned in the public prison. Um, they're carried away in the middle of the day, but still... You know, they, they don't want to kill them. They want to kill them, but they don't because they, they're fear of the crowd. They, they don't want to lose. Um, and that's one of the things that's different with Stephen. Um, it's not just the leaders who are opposed to him, but this is the first time we see the people. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So this is the first time we see the crowd in Jerusalem reject, openly reject um, the, the ministry, the apostolic ministry. Right, uh, we see the mob. The mob thus far has seemed to have been more in the, like, impressed by the apostles. And, um, and now, and notice that they're, the word... Um, they secretly instigated men, he said. Like, so there's some work going on here to start turning the mob 
um, against the apostolic ministry. Um, and that word like secretly instigated there is, is, is yeah, it, it captures that kind of idea of someone spreading lies about someone to inspire those people to act. Yeah, that you have these synagogues that are um, actively turning the crowd against them, and he even says Stephen arrest. Um, but notice it's it's false. Um, you know that they are bringing forward false witnesses. They're they're not accusing him. Uh, the things they're accusing him, they're twisting his words to fit their accusations. It's not that he's doing the things they're they're saying he's doing, but they're interpreting what he's doing uh, in a false way and. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, in that way, um, uh, one scholar um, I was looking at this week actually came up with 10 different ways Stephen's trial mirrored that of Jesus. Um, that, it, you know, it's happening in the exact same way that Jesus was betrayed by taking Jesus' words and falsely twisting them um, to, to bring forth an accusation against him. <laughs> yeah, they 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 they've been more concerted in their effort to uh, to defend. Yeah, the irony of saying he's blaspheming against the law and they're violating the law to, to make the charge. Um, yeah, I, and I, I, you're putting your finger on Luke is absolutely, I think, bringing out the, the irony here. Um, and as we think about this charge of, of, of you know, going against Moses, I mean, it's, it's kind of the order of the words is kind of weird. He's spoken blasphemous words against Moses and God. Like, blasphemy is supposed to be about God and, you know, the other things. But, like, the God should take priority in that sentence, and it doesn't. Um, yeah, this emphasis on, on Moses. And, and we'll see um, in, in Stephen's sermon next week that, you know, the way Moses is coming into it, and we've already seen it a little bit, um, in, in Peter's sermon, that Peter um, is basically saying that, that Jesus is, um, so back in chapter 3, after the healing of the lame man, um, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so they're laying claim to Jesus as being this prophet um, who is a second Moses, um, who is like Moses, who's proclaiming the words of truth. And Stephen's gonna, that theme's going to come up in his sermon that we'll see next week. 
And so that's where the, the, the blasphemy against Moses is coming out, as they're proclaiming Jesus is the one of whom Moses prophesied, there will be a prophet like me. Um, and in order to make the accusation, they're having to violate the law of Moses, which is the irony that, um, that Luke is trying to bring out. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, absolutely. And they're acting out of a sense of righteous indignation about not knowing that it's, it's because of a lie. And notice how that colors, like, how they'll respond to what Stephen says. Like, because in, in a sense, you know, the jury pool's been poisoned already. Like, you know, it's kind of like they've, a, a certain message has come out about the defendant already that's been kind of spread. Um, and so the pool is tainted. So when they adjudicate the case, they're listening to, to not to hear if Stephen's saying is truth, they're listening to hear him say blasphemy. So even when he does proclaim truth, they don't respond to it as truth, they respond to it as a declaration of, of blasphemy. And I think it's this, I mean, I think that's a great analogy of the modern case to help understand this. Uh, case as well, how, you know, the, the crowd, by having these lies spread among them, you know, to, to raise up their sense of, of righteous indignation, so they're not in the same position as they were when they come and they're with open ears, now they're coming with closed ears and closed eyes, which leads to um, bad news for Stephen. Yeah, yeah, to, to, you know, to listen to truth. Um, and I mean, that, that's going to be a great, um, I think that's a great place to kind of to, to think about going into Stephen's sermon for next week. Like, if we read that sermon, is there really, is he really doing the things that they accuse him of and the things they kill him for? You know, is he blaspheming against Moses in the temple? Or have they already made up his mind that 
that any attempt to say that, well, the temple really isn't that important because it's, you know, God dwells everywhere. And so, he's, you know, it's not his, like, the only place where God is. Um, you know, by saying that, <laughs> like, that's blasphemy against the temple. Like, um, by saying that, that Jesus is, is a prophet like Moses, is that really blasphemy against Moses? Or, again, have they you know, bought the lie rather than listening to what's actually being said and looking for truth, um, have they already made up their mind? Um, all right, well, we're at time, so, um, so let me close us in prayer. But, again, just uh, next week we'll keep this story keeps on um, through Chapter 7 as we look at Stephen's defense of himself. So we, we haven't yet encountered the actual words Stephen said that have gotten him in trouble. We've only heard what he's being accused of. Um, uh, but next week we'll see him defend himself. We'll see Moses comes up in it. The temple comes up in his sermon. Um, is he really doing the things that he's being accused of? Um, and what is the message that he's presenting before the council that leads to his, his death and, and their, their anger toward him? So let me close this. Gracious God, we do thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to uh, dwell in our hearts and to give us uh, insight into your word. We haven't come to uh, the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and as the Savior of all men on our own, but it's only come by your word and your spirit um, bringing light into our dark hearts by making our uh, dead hearts alive to the things of the Spirit, by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that you would also give us tongues to proclaim, that you would give us the same Spirit to be faithful proclaimers of the truth and faithful doers of, the, of your word, that we would seek to love one another as a body, um, by making sure that people's needs are, are met, both within and without our community. Um, but we'd also proclaim in word and to be willing to speak truth to power, even when um, those in authority don't want to hear it um, and refuse to see the truth, that we would be faithful to you and to the proclamation of your word, that we would fear you more, that we would fear, more than we would fear men. Lord God, give us the spirit to help us to worship and to fellowship one another uh, as we uh, prepare to worship in this coming hour. Unite us in the spirit and truth as we hear your word proclaimed and as we see your word proclaimed at the table and we share the body and blood of Christ with one another that by word and deed, your word would go forth and help us to worship you in the spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.